Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. If you find yourself alone riding in green fields with the sun on your face, don't be troubled, for you're Elysium and you're already dead. <laughs> I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we are starting in on our second of our Outer Plains. As you might have guessed from James's introductory little segment there, we are going into Elysium today, the plane of good. I really have some strong mixed feelings on this plane. Oh yes, it would be a wonderful place for a short visit. I would not want to stay here. That's half the problem, I don't think the visits are meant to be short. <laughs> it depends. You can generally get away with a short visit without much issue because all of the checks that you would do and we're going to get into this in a little bit all of the checks that you have to do at least in the older versions were once a week in the newer versions i believe it triggers after a a long rest yes once a day if you take a long rest in elysium you have to make a dc 10 wisdom save and if you fail you can't willingly leave until the next day and if you fail three times you can't willingly leave well, I guess we're just going to jump right into it then. <laughs> yeah, might as well. So yeah, let's leave that there. Let's talk about Elysium, how it functions, and we'll get back into that. Because really, it feels insidious. It really feels kind of gross, like the toxic version of good. I don't know, like I said, this really left a wonky feeling for me. Well, I mean, it's one of those things where the pure ends of the morality spectrum really take away from free will. It really does, and that's, that is my break. When Ian and I discussed this episode, we were going through, and I was kind of taking this as like a bit of a Rorschach test, because the more I read about Elysium, the more this place sounds terrible. And I, I will be the first to say that my alignment probably runs neutral, chaotic neutral, lawful neutral, somewhere in there. This place almost makes me angry in a weird way because like it says it does slowly strip away your free will which to me would be the opposite of good it reminds me a lot of the common christian depiction of heaven but even worse no because if you stop and think about it if you stop and really listen in to what they say is going to happen in heaven you sit around praising god for all of eternity that's not free will either. Granted, yes. You know, the depictions that they give of heaven, there is no free will in the Christian heaven. This is true. It has a lot of those parallels there. And the Christian heaven is purportedly a good place. So that's where we're getting with that. Yeah, that's what I mean. And again, I'm not going to... I could jump on my views of the Christian heaven and things like that, and we'd probably lose a bunch of listeners. And so I'm not going to, I will tactfully decline on, on that <laughs> one. I will not tilt at that particular windmill. All right. So Elysium, the way it's set up, it's really weird. It's a hodgepodge. Going through some history of the plane, it obviously, from first edition, it's been around since forever. First edition, they tweaked it a little bit in second edition. They pretty much left it alone in third edition. And then they obliterated it. They completely removed it in fourth edition. And I kind of want to retcon, or not retcon, but make something canon that from now on, we should just call the fourth edition the dark times. They did some good things. They really tried to do something different, but they screwed up so much stuff. And they just really, fourth edition is easily the worst edition. Even as wonky as first edition got, fourth edition, they just totally messed it up. And so I think from now on, I'm just referring to fourth edition as the dark times. Well, the big thing is fourth edition moved away from the great wheel cosmology, which is what you have throughout all of the previous editions. And now they've gone back to it in fifth edition. They went to the world axis. Yes. But I mean, just the way, I mean, they tweaked so much stuff in fourth edition and some of it worked, but very little of it worked well. That's a matter for a different episode and another debate. Okay. There are aspects of 4th edition that I really, really enjoyed. The issue that I had, here I am going in, the issue that I had was they tried to make it feel more like a video game than a tabletop game. And the problem with making it feel like a video game is the video game has a computer to do math for you. So it lost a lot of the quintessential D&D feel 
But there are a lot of merits to fourth edition, both as a storytelling system and as a mechanical system. And so it really is a matter of personal preference. I agree with you on a great number of your points that fourth edition is my least favorite edition, but I wouldn't say that it's the worst edition. That is far too subjective of a statement for me to stand by. Really? I mean, okay. I curious to hear your ranking of editions but that can be another podcast another time i mean because if you're wanting to get into mechanical stuff second edition has a lot of weird mechanical stuff too it does but i love second edition and they explain so much stuff and i mean everything is there's a lot of weird mechanical stuff but it's all laid out and it's cohesive with the rest of the editions by and large well because there was only one edition for it to be cohesive with well, that, I mean, three and five really as well. I mean, it still fits, but yeah, I get your point. All right. Well, let's drop oh, that. <laughs> let's drop that and, and get into today's topic. Yeah. So going into the fifth edition Dungeon Master's Guide, Elysium, Elysium comes back from somewhere. And it has one paragraph. Because that's all you need. It has <laughs> one paragraph that tells you almost nothing about the plane. It completely leaves out the fact that there are four layers to this plane. And it just gives you this one paragraph that says that it's this plane of pure good that has this variant rule that might keep you stuck there. Done. Okay. That's it. That's literally it. (laughs) So we're going to have to dive into the older editions just to have something to talk about. Absolutely. And again, I really do like the older editions a lot. I am also fairly certain that they intended to either put out like a manual of the planes or delve into these in more detail and just haven't gotten to them yet or somehow forgotten about them. I also think, as I stated before, they're running up on some deadlines and just kind of flubbed some chapters together just so they had them so they could put them out. Like, okay, that's good enough for now. We'll we'll fix it later. Go. <laughs> All right. So let's go into second edition AD&D Elysium. I'm not going into first edition OD&D because I don't have the books for that. I do happen to have the second edition Planescape books. So that's where a big chunk of my information is coming from. That and the 3.5 Manual of the Planes are the primary sources for most of my information on the planes. That's where most of them are coming up. Now, I've gathered from various online sources. Unfortunately, they would say... It came from either one of those two, but never specified like which part or where. Yeah, a lot of the articles that I was seeing were citing specific pages in either the DM's Guide to the Planes from Planescape or the Manual of the Planes from 3rd Edition. So it bounced around a little bit. So the Blessed Fields of Elysium are also known as the Restful Plain or the Land of the Thoughtless, depending on the perspective of the person that you're asking. James would be probably in the school of the land of the thoughtless, because that is the people who tend to have issue with the way that the plane functions. Yeah, I mean, specifically with the fact that it takes away from your self-determination and it ends up eventually leeching your memories. It does like the, the plane of the thoughtless. And I mean, I would fall into this. And so. When I read about the Plane of Elysium, it really reminded me of Homer's Odyssey. And again, talking about where you have to make that will save, otherwise you can't willingly leave. I'm going to go ahead and read a small paragraph. This is Homer's Odyssey. So they went straight away and mingled with the Lotus Eaters. The Lotus Eaters did not plan death for my comrades, but gave them of the Lotus to taste. And whoever of them ate of the honey-sweet fruit of the Lotus no longer had any wish to bring back word or return, but they were fain to abide among the Lotus Eaters, feeding on the Lotus forgetful of their homeward way. These men, therefore, I brought back to the ships, weeping and dragged them beneath the benches and bound them fast in the hollow of the ship. So basically the lotus eaters, that's all they wanted to do was sit and eat the lotus. And that's exactly what I picture when we talk about Elysium. And this leads into a lot of philosophical debate of if they are happy, is it a good thing to remove them? Because they're not doing anything. They're not productive. They are not accomplishing anything. They're just languishing but they're happy. So at what point is it morally right, good in this case, to pull someone out of that malaise? Is it good to keep someone so fogged and sedated that they just want to stay? Is that really good? That is an interesting philosophical debate to have. I don't think we have time to have that debate (laughs) today. Sorry. But that's a good question to bring up. 
Um, yeah, so I mean, the plane of good, the more I read about it, seemed less and less good. Like I said, it started sounding really super insidious. Yes, it does get to that point. But while it says that, you know, you end up losing your memories as you go along, from what I was reading from the lower levels in Elysium, this seems to be mostly confined to the first layer. This is the first layer, yes, but it's also the most populated layer. It is, because it's the first one that you show up on. Granted. And it's not easy to get down to the lower layers of Elysium. It doesn't really get much better as you go, though. That's all a matter of perspective, really. Granted. But talking about navigation through Elysium, Elysium is the source for the River Oceanus. And the River Oceanus is the Upper Plains counterpart to the Lower Plains River Styx. It is a river that flows between multiple plains in the upper realms. And so it is a way that you can navigate through the plains, through the good aligned plains, in much the same way that the river Styx can allow you to navigate through the evil lower aligned plains. And so because the river is there, it is basically ever present. The easiest way to travel in Elysium is by boat. There are also a large number of aquatic creatures within Elysium. They are sentient, but they are intelligent, or more so than their uh, material plane counterparts. And they also tend to be a bit larger because the waters of Elysium, where it's one of the good aligned planes, it is closely bordering the plane of positive energy. So that positive energy gets infused into the waters of Oceanus. And so the aquatic creatures within the plane of Elysium tend to get larger and more intelligent as a result. It's some good magical healing water. It is some good <laughs> magical healing water. That is the biggest difference between the waters of Oceanus and the waters of Styx is that, you know, the waters of the river Styx are poisoned and you will lose your memories if you go into them. So that is a big thing. Well, this river is the blessed glacial water from... Uh... From Waterboy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's that faintly blue glowing water from Waterboy that's always cold. So the plain of Elysium is the primary plane of influence for one of the planescape factions called the Transcendent Order also known as the Cyphers, and their motto was, I am, therefore I act. They were a neutral faction, which was really odd for me to try and wrap my head around why a neutral faction would make their home on a good aligned plane. But their whole thing is they promote instinctual action without thought, because thought causes hesitation, and that you have to have a certain amount of self-knowledge certain amount of self-reflection to know what the right action is going to be so that you don't have to think about what the right action is going to be because anybody can just chaotically do something. But once you have an understanding of self, then you have confidence to know what the right course of action is going to be. And then you just do it. Yeah. These guys kind of remind me of the old Gnostics in a way. A bit. It's yeah. That, it's that, the purity of thought, these would be a really interesting monk order, I think, to run with. And they, they're they found in all the planes, and they kind of just gather, and they kind of have, like, these home cipher meetings that kind of remind me of, like, the early church, or maybe, like, some weird cult-type thing, or maybe, like, the Jehovah's Witness, where they knock on the door and, hey, do you want to learn about cipherism? But yeah, that, again, it's that innate thought itself is what is good, for lack of a better term. They're looking for purity between thought and action. And so I think... How do I want to phrase Again, a little wonky, but I think that this has a potential for some write-ups and definitely for some adventure type things. I want to delve into them a little bit more, but there's definitely potential here to do actually something really interesting with them, I think. Yeah, and the quote that I found, and this is from a fandom article and it's not cited, and I couldn't find this particular explanation in any of the second edition books, but the quote is, they also form ad hoc headquarters on the harmonious plane of Elysium where they establish individual huts. The ciphers believe that Elysium is a plane of goodness without conscious thought. So it is that absence of conscious thought is that getting into a state where you, in the case of Elysium, where you do good instinctively without thinking about it 
that is the mindset that they're trying to get into in their expression of action without thought. Right. But again, they're neutral, so it's weird that they'd wind up on a good plane. But, I mean, they could almost do this. Well, I don't know, because we'll talk about later the evil planes or the chaotic planes. They tend to just make you kind of blah like in the shadow fell but again we will get into those another week so in elysium while it does take away your conscious thought and planning there's still action where a lot of the negative planes for lack of a better term but your other outer planes they tend to just pull away your desire to actually do anything at all so maybe this is as close to neutral thought and movement as they could find yeah i think so and like i said this plane makes me feel very weird. Like I said, I have so many mixed feelings about this plan. I, it's really, really hard to do like, oh, it's good. Oh, it's bad. It's it's weird. It's just very, very weird. Yeah. So the last real big thing that I wanted to touch on from second edition is that the native creatures to Elysium and the petitioners in Elysium that are the creatures that have come to Elysium and have stayed and have become a part of the plane. Um, these creatures are all immune to charm, hold, and summoning spells. They cannot be compelled to do anything because their thoughtless connection to Elysium keeps them from being able to be compelled. Right. And so they're almost literally stuck there. So like you could pick one up bodily and take them off, kind of like Odysseus had to do his crewmates, but they didn't leave willingly. And again, that gets back into that philosophical debate of what is good. Is that actually good? I mean, if you're stuck there, I don't know. I mean, can you consent if you can't consent? And additionally, on top of that, if you are physically removed from the plane, you do everything that you can to try and get back. Right. It is a compulsion of its own, in a sense, that if you are taken away from Elysium while you were under this effect, you try and get back and you do everything in your power to get back. Yeah. And like I said, that doesn't sound good to me. Yeah. But that might just be our rational yeah. human thought going on. That, Poss- that, very that, might be, that might be our law interfering with our good. Yes, very possible. <laughs> <laughs> so going into third edition, third edition didn't add a whole lot to Elysium, but it did add some mechanical details. The first of which is that while in Elysium, everything has the ability fast healing two, which means that at the beginning of each round, you recover two hit points. Oh, that's kind of cool. That's a nice little. So it makes it very difficult to kill something outright in Elysium. And it makes the fights drag out a lot longer. Beat them up real good. Although, I don't know why you would (laughs) if you were good. I'm not saying Takamata would find himself here. And, I mean, Takamata would love this place. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. So, next thing is just the overwhelming sense of good and the almost compulsion to do good means that neutral and evil-aligned creatures take a minus two penalty on all of their intelligence, wisdom, and charisma-based checks while within the plane. I can see that. And that makes sense because you have the same thing in a lot of the other planes. So I'm okay with that. I hadn't come across that in my readings, but that definitely sounds like a third edition edition. (laughs) Yeah, because they were all about their plus minus one, two, five modifiers. The next one is that non-outsiders on Elysium, so... Creatures that are not celestials or native to the plane. So that would be any of your humanoids coming in, anything native to a different plane. Because Outsider was a creature tag in In third edition. In third edition. That's where that's coming from. So any beasts and humanoids and all of those sorts of creatures, they have to make the will save at the end of each week. So it starts off as a DC 10 plus the number of weeks that you've been there. And when you fail that, then you become a petitioner. You will not willingly leave and you begin to lose your memories. Now, see, they changed that in fifth edition, but I'm sure you'll get to that here in a second. Well, I mean, we've touched on it a little bit already. They took away the lose your memories bit. That they did, yes. But it's still a wisdom save. They moved it from once a week to once a day. It's once per long rest. And then if you fail... You will not willingly leave until you complete another long rest. If you fail three of them, you won't willingly leave at all. Yes. So it's almost like your death saves. Yeah. Which, again, kind of creepy. 
<laughs> and the only way that you could cure somebody, because you could cure somebody of this. You could magically return their memories and their free will by using either the wish spell or the miracle spell, which was the cleric equivalent of wish in third edition. One Tarasque, please. So it can be reversed. But not easily at all. But not easily. No, it takes a ninth level spell to actually reverse this. And the last little bit is that neutral and evil creatures tend to get lost whenever they're trying to navigate in Elysium. Just the constant bombardment, because at least the first layer is depicted as being super saturated with color because of the proximity to the positive energy plane. So it has very vibrant, vivid, distracting brightness of color. And so neutral and evil aligned creatures will get distracted by that and have a hard time navigating. So they get dazzled. So they get dazzled by color spray. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. So they're often very easily spotted by the Gardinals, which I'm going to get into. They are a creature that is native to the plane of Elysium. Again, the Gardinals, kind of cool, kind of creepy. Everything about Elysium is kind of cool, kind of creepy. And not in 5th edition. But if the creature they spot is evil, they attack it. If they can't kill it, they call in the more powerful Gardinals who can. And if they are neutral, they stop them. And they figure out what they're doing. And then they will either aid them on their quest or... Or attack them. No, they won't attack them. They will escort them out. GTFO. And in either case, they end up getting this very long, but gently worded lecture on their need to be good. Oh, yay. I get lectured by dad the whole way out. Mm. Mm, There's the campaign for you. The session is just a two hour long dad lecture. Yeah, the two hours of why dad is disappointed with you. He's not mad. He's just disappointed. Yeah, that's pretty (laughs) much it. Oh, God. That sounds so terrible. (laughs) It does, doesn't it? All right. So let's go ahead and get started in on the four layers of Elysium. So the first level is called Amoria. This is the level that you're going to come in on whenever you first enter the plain of Elysium. It's very woodlands and meadows. It's the Shire. It is the Shire. It's the Shire. It's these little towns nestled up on the banks of the river. Filled with evil little hobbits. Brown feet. Yes. Brown, fuzzy, tiny feet that are going to knock into my knees and hurt me. No, it's proud feet. Proud Proud feet, yes. Yeah, not brown. Proud. But this is the plane where the ciphers have their huts that they go to whenever they need some place to go and convene about something. There are several small trading towns located along the river. The largest of them is a town called Release from Care. I didn't find a whole lot about these various towns, but they are these just little trading towns that just pop up along the river. Yeah, so this is kind of where... Again, everything's going to be fairly peaceful. Everything's going to be pretty calm. Like I said, unless like some weird nasty somehow gets like teleported right into the top of the planet, there's not really a whole lot going on up here. It's probably why you don't have a lot as far as write up because everyone's just kind of sitting there happy singing Kumbaya. Yeah, that does tend to be the depiction that I get at least. Now, I will say, and you'll see this more in the second layer and stuff, the first layer, there will be poor people, there will be homeless people, there will be sick people. So you have the opportunity to help them and prove your goodness. And again, talking about some of the weird insidious nature of Elysium, that is one of them. Travel. As long as you are doing good, your travel is unhindered, but there is constantly an opportunity to do good. So Elysium's the place where you would win the lottery just so you could give it away. Hey, I won $1,000 on a scratch-off lotto ticket. Oh, look, Billy broke his leg and needs $999 for a cast. Here you go, Billy. That's the kind of stuff that's in Elysium. So there's always this weird, not compulsion to do good, but it's always put right in front of your face. And if you don't constantly do good, like I said, your movement through the plane becomes very difficult and slowed, aside from the weird will save that erases your memory and everything else. So it's... Again, you have to do good in Elysium. Otherwise, you're not getting anywhere. Except unless you get escorted with a dad lecture. I'm kind of disappointed that you fail to grasp the concept that Elysium has free universal health care. It doesn't, though. I mean, it might, <laughs> but... <laughs> 
But again, it's that forced. You might have the free universal health care, but there's always going to be something. If you have a sandwich, then there's always going to be someone who needs half of your sandwich type thing. Or there's always going to be someone that needs help. And so you are constantly in a point where you need to give aid somewhere to get anywhere. And so the fact that they have people in need just so you can prove your goodness, that feels weird to me too. Right. Okay. So the weather in Amoria is always pristine. At least that bit's nice. Yeah. Um, it has seasons, but if you're not native, the changes from one season to the next are so subtle that you'll probably miss it. Now that we are in some of the proper outer planes, we're getting into planes where different deities have their own individual realms. We ran into that a little bit in Mechanist, but not much. The Celestial Emperor was one of them. Primus, while of a power scale to be a deity, isn't technically a god. They are just an incredibly powerful Modron. So that aspect is a little bit different. But here in Elysium, you actually have proper realms of proper gods. And there are two notable deities that have realms within Amoria, the first layer of Elysium. One of them is Isis, the Egyptian goddess, because it is a very peaceful river sort of realm. You know, she's the goddess of the Nile. Yeah, that ties in really well. And her realm is apparently famous for its firefly lanterns, which line the riverbank, which I think is a nice little touch, personally. That is a nice touch. Yeah, I like that. That I would go visit. Yeah. And then the other one is Ishtar, which I think Ishtar is one of the Forgotten Realms gods. Ishtar's Sumerian uh, from the Epic of Gilgamesh. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Ishtar is also a Sumerian god, but I think Ishtar has made the transition into the Forgotten Realms pantheon. Oh, okay. If they have, I'm not aware of it. I just know from mythology. Now I have to look that up. Okay. Just because... Yeah, they're, they're not listed in the 5th edition Pantheon list, but they were one of the gods that was listed in a Pantheon later on, which is why I think that they are part of a Forgotten Realms Pantheon now. And I'll get to that in a little bit, but Ishtar has a realm called the City of the Star, where there is one very tall tower in the center of the city that has a star at the top of it that illuminates the realm. Um, that is literally the extent of the description that I could find in the Planescape books. <laughs> That's all you get. The rest is on you. There's this one really tall tower with a star on top of it. This is why they call it the City of the Star. And Ishtar lives there. So I think there's the giant ziggurat or whatever in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And that might be referencing that. I don't recall exactly. It has been so long since I've read Gilgamesh that yeah. I couldn't tell you. But the last thing about Amoria is that this is the home to the rulers of the Gardinals, which they are half-beast, half-humanoid sort of creatures that are inherently good, and they are the soldiers in the perpetual war against evil. They're the peacekeepers. Yeah, they are. They primarily operate out of Elysium, but they are also found in the other good-aligned realms. You will find now that the Lionel race type is actually derived from the Gardinal. I think 5e, you have the Lionel, they're like, kind of like Tabaxi's, but not quite. Um, more. Not exactly. The Leonin are That's what from, I'm thinking of. Yeah, the Leonin are from Ravnica. Okay. That's in one of the Magic the Gathering crossover books. Okay. But the ruler of the Gardinals is Prince Talisid, who is a Leonel. And then he has five lieutenants... Duke Lucan, who is a Lupinal, which are the wolf people. Duchess Callisto, who is an Ursinal or a bear. Duke Windair, who is an Averil or an eagle. Lord Huin, who is an Equinal or horse. And uh, Lord Rannoch, who is a Servidal or a ram. So there's your six primary cardinals is lion, wolf, bear, eagle, horse and ram. When I was reading this, this very much had a Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe feel to it. And again, you have your, I think it's the four heavenly creatures in the Book of Revelations when you want to delve into your Christian lore. Not quite six, but even still, if you had your Godhead and then six creatures there, so that is a thing because there is a bunch of animals that are supposed to surround the throne of God that's supposed to help him 
judge and, and compare souls come judgment day and all that, which is a weird bit of Christian lore. So again, Elysium's got a bunch of various lore thrown in there, and we'll see that in some of these other planes that we'll we'll get to later. Oh, you see that in all of the planes. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things that you have to keep in mind is that the outer planes are a hodgepodge of just about every real world religious iconography just sort of mash together however they kind of fit. Right, yeah. I mean, congrats for being inclusive, because if it's there, they throw it in, and you're included too. So awesome for that. Though it does feel a little hodgepodgey. That said, the Cardinals are kind of cool creatures, and they're not limited just to the plane of Elysium. So if you want to pull them out on a planescape you know, campaign or have them down in the material plane or wherever your party is, you can definitely pull these guys out and have them run around. You can definitely encounter them for obvious reasons that we discussed. If you bring your party to Elysium. Oh, yeah, they frequently act as messengers and couriers for the various good aligned deities. Be not afraid. I'm going to drop the hammer. <laughs> yeah. Although I think that I would be less afraid of one of these cardinals showing up and telling me not to be afraid than I would be one of the biblical depiction angels. Of the cherubim? Yeah, that show up that's just wheels of eyes. Yeah, I believe those were the cherubim. The seraphims were the ones with like four or five heads and a bunch yeah. of wings. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's why they had to say, do not be afraid, because they were effing terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> this eldritch horror bathed in light appears in the sky and tells me not to be afraid without moving its lips, you know. Why are there tentacles? <laughs> anyway, getting back on topic. So once the river continues on out Is of... Is the river named? Yes, it's the River Oceanus. Oh, I thought, okay, I thought Oceanus was the ocean that surrounded everything. No. Okay. To my knowledge, there is no ocean that surrounds everything. I thought there was. Okay, so the river, okay, I misread that then. So the river continues on into the second layer, which is called Aronia. Now, Aronia is a bit more interesting. It is. It transforms from, you know, very... Sedate. Pastoral. Pastoral yes. is the word I'm looking for. Okay, that works. The, the meadows and the woods... And the just very gentle, beautiful nature. Eronia is quite a bit more hostile yes. than Amoria is. It's primarily steep mountains of white granite with some plateaus and mesas interspersed within just to have some flat spots for people to congregate. And more just to congregate from what I read, like if people wanted to experience nature, if for whatever reason they weren't completely pacified in the first level, they could come to the second level and again, kind of do natural things, be with nature, kind of go out. But then it's literally them versus nature or the wild. So here you could have savage animal attacks because it's not necessarily good or evil, but if they're hurt, it gives the random traveler an opportunity to do good. Same thing if they're caught in like a snowstorm or if they fall into a river or if they need help through a mountain. Also here, this is where those that died in battle for good are going to wind up being. So those, this is almost like a weird version of Valhalla. Not necessarily. Okay. A lot of those end up in the last layer. Okay. Eronia is specifically for good souls that still want to be challenged in the afterlife. Yes. So this is where your good aligned barbarians will probably go. This is where if you have some good aligned Goliaths, this would probably be about where they would want to end up. Yeah. This is where you're going to go if you don't want to be bored. Yeah. And if you were one of those people who did CrossFit and mountain climbing and all of these extreme sports and you were a good person when you died, this is where you'd want to go to keep doing that. Yeah. This is like if you died trying to like lift the car off the person because they or, you know, the weights and the weights fell out, you know. You died in the gym doing doing good. Yeah, you're going to go. <laughs> <laughs> so the weather in Eronia is far more severe than it is in Amoria. So you end up having snowstorms. You have lightning storms. You have constant strong winds. So creatures that have a fly speed, their ability to fly is hampered. Even the Averils, the winged cardinals, have trouble flying through this particular layer of Elysium. The summers are hotter. The winters are more bitter. It is definitely a place where if you want to be challenged by nature, this is where you go. And again, all of these opportunities for challenging nature 
gives you, quote, quote, gives you the opportunity to further do good. So again, it kind of comes into that people are going to be harmed or put in danger so others can prove their goodness or you and your party can prove your goodness. And as your party travels, if you are constantly helping and doing good, you go unimpeded. But if you start like, I don't have the energy, I don't have the resources, I don't have the time to help, then suddenly your journey becomes more arduous and longer. It takes longer and longer for you to get to where you're going. Again, kind of really, really creepy. But this really occurs on this layer here. So this is not a, necessarily a safe place to be. Oh, no. And that's pretty good thing to note is that really none of the planes outside of the material plane are all that safe for people who are from the material plane because they are outsiders, because they are going to have a certain distinct disadvantage wherever they go. Right. And again, depending on your system you're using, like I said, in third edition, you actually got the negative rolls to, to some of your stats. Those weren't present in fifth edition, but again, just the way the planes themselves are, they are hostile by and large to non-natives. Yes. So going into some of the deities that make their realms within this second layer of Elysium. In second edition, it was Enlil, E-N-L-I-L, who is the patriarch of the Untheric pantheon, which is one of the Forgotten Realms pantheons early on. The pantheon itself doesn't exist anymore. So it was forgotten? Well, this, is, <laughs> this was really interesting. There was a... I guess it was a campaign arc. I don't know if it was in some of the books or if it was in some of the modules called the Orc Gate Wars. Oh, good title. Where the gray orcs showed up in the Forgotten Realms. I forget whereabouts. I think in and around Mascar. But their whole thing was they were able to call on the avatars of their gods to join them in battle. Nice. And so this war broke out between the orcs and the other races that were already there. And it culminated in what was called the Battle of the Gods, where both sides basically just called their gods down onto the battlefield to slug it out. That would make a great module. And with the Untheric Pantheon, the Pantheon had like 12 or 13 gods in it, and only about four of them survived. Oh, wow. And so the ones that survived ended up getting absorbed into another pantheon. But two of the notable names from this list of the Untheric gods are Ishtar, which we mentioned in the last layer, and Tiamat. Oh. Tiamat was originally a deity of the Untheric pantheon. Gotcha. But a different one of the Untheric gods called Nanasin in second edition was sort of a kind of a Karen counterpart. Okay. Because he navigates the river Oceanus through Elysium. He was one of the gods killed during the Orc Gate Wars. But oddly enough, in fourth edition, Enlil gave his essence to Asmodeus, who revived him as an immortal to destroy a navy in a battle. It was kind of weird. He took the form of a massive dragon turtle which was kind of cool. That is rather cool. I mean, if you're going to pick something. So technically, Nanasin is alive again, but he's not a god anymore. Gotcha. But Nanasin was a barge pilot who would be able to assist people in navigating the way through, specifically Eronia, the second layer, because the river breaks off and forks and wraps around and joins back in, going around all of these different spires of mountains throughout the realm, it's very easy to get lost. And so you would have to have a native guide to make sure that you can actually get through the mountains the way that you want to go. So continuing on the third layer, which I thought was really cool, is called Balearin, which is this misty swamp slash march that doesn't have the bugs and pestilence that you would normally get in a swamp. And one of the cool things... This is both my favorite layer and the creepiest layer at the same time. It is. And the cool thing is that rather than impeding vision, the fog within the swamp actually amplifies 
and diffuses light. So if you've ever driven in the fog and flipped your high beams on, which you should not ever do, but if you've ever accidentally made that mistake, you get that reflective glare back. That's kind of what I picture when they say this. Kind of, but it's almost more like putting on your fog lamps because oddly enough, you do actually get your additional range of vision whenever you use spells or torches or what have you that generate light. The light actually does assist you rather than hamper you in the foggy swamp. Gotcha. Counterintuitively. Yeah, that would be counterintuitive. The way they described it when I read it, it seemed like it was amplified it, so it shone back in your face and made it more difficult. But again, I could have misread that. That may be a matter of interpretation. That's how I interpreted how it was described in the books. Gotcha. Now, this level is where you're going to find a lot of your cardinals hanging around. And this is where Elysium gets super, super insidious. And like I said, there's a lot of like, that sounds cool. And then just under the surface, kind of creepy and questionable. So you've got this swamp layer and you've got this fog. And then there is something that the Cardinals are hiding and keeping behind the fog that they don't talk about. But they are there guarding it, making sure it doesn't get out. And making sure that other outsiders can't get in to break it out. Right. And so what the hell do they have back there on the plane of good? This is supposedly a prison layer. Because you know what? You can't have a whole plane of good unless you've got a corporate prison. <laughs> right. And this is playing into the same sort of idea as the windowless cell in the heart of the citadel of ice and steel on the plane of air. Is that there's a prisoner there, but nobody knows what that prisoner is. Some of the options that were thrown out in the books that I read. I believe this is in the third edition manual of the planes. And it said to doctor it as you needed to fit your story, which I thought was really cool. But we're going full of crafting where you're going to say there's a monster. You might get a glimpse of a monster, but we're never actually going to describe what the monster is. The options that they have is uh, possibly a powerful creature on par with the Tarrasque or possibly even the Tarrasque. Possibly an Archduke from one of the lower planes. So one of the Archdukes of Hell or one of the Demon Lords or some such almost God-level evil creature. A deposed Elemental Prince. So someone on par with the Princes of Elemental Evil. So Olhydra or Imix or Yansibin. One of those level Elemental Creatures. Or possibly even a Wounded God. Oh, wow. You could have... An evil-aligned god. Maybe one of the gods from the Battle of the Gods from the Orc Gate Wars. One of them wasn't actually killed, but was captured by one of the good-aligned gods and secreted away to this third layer of Elysium and imprisoned in the swamp. Here, this would clash with some lore, but then I could make it work too. But what if Colonel walks up here? And everyone thinks he's in an underground labyrinth, but he's just locked away on the planet again. Yeah, well, I mean, technically it would be true because it is all of these little channels and passages around the hillocks and stuff in the swamp. So it is technically a labyrinth, but rather than being hallways through stone, it's waterways through a swamp. Yeah. So I could see twisting that around and making that actually work. We need to send our kobolds up here. Free curdle mock. <laughs> And so one of the notable details is that no deity is known to have a realm on this layer of Elysium. Right, because it's the gel cell. Yeah, it is. But I mean, you would think that maybe one of the more lawful good gods might have some presence here if it is actually a prison. Someone like, I don't want to say Tyr because Tyr is lawful neutral. Fire Nation Pelor. Well, Pelor is on the next layer. Halor is firmly in Thalacia, which oh, okay. which we're getting to. In well, just... maybe he's just close enough then. <laughs> maybe. He's close enough that he can jump a tier if he needs to. Yeah. All right. So now that we're talking about it, Thalacia is the bottom layer of Elysium. It is where the headwaters of the River Oceanus are. So oddly enough, it starts at the bottom and works its way up. It's kind of weird, but... It flows backwards like the Nile does. I guess, yeah. It's a giant sea dotted with islands. So basically it's Avalon from Arthurian myth. And Avalon is actually one of the names for this lair. Right. The Isles of Avalon. So many of the petitioners 
here on this particular layer came to this layer while they were still alive but dying. So this is where your old soldiers or your wounded soldiers, this is where they go. And unlike the other layers of Elysium, the petitioners here retain their memories, but they're at peace with their memories. They don't harbor malice towards anyone that they knew in life. This layer would be okay. I would be okay with this layer. It's not as creepy. I mean, you're at peace. You're content with what you did in life. You're good. If you want to be a hermit, you can get your own little island and do your own little Animal Crossing thing, have your own setup. You're good. And so the primary location within this particular layer of the plane is the Fortress of the Sun, which is the realm of Pelor. Pelor is one of the dominant gods in the Forgotten Realms pantheon. He is arguably the most powerful of the good aligned gods. And he has control over the morphic nature of this entire layer of the plane. So one of the cool things is throughout the entirety of this plane, gravity is halved, according to the older books. So anything that would allow you to, like, say, the jump spell that gives you that extra range to jump, technically you would double that. Nice. Because gravity's halved. So your high jump and long jump distances would be doubled. And it specifically says that he can alter the effects of the plane at his will. So if you decide that you're going to show up and cause trouble, he can decide to crank the gravity up to 11. And then you're not going anywhere. But the other thing is that because he is a sun god, his fortress is radiant. And so it illuminates the plane within 100 miles of his fortress. Oh, nice. So it's permanent daytime within 100 miles of his fortress. And it does also say in the second edition book that there are other gods that they didn't name, gods of the sea, that make their realms on this layer. So I went and picked through a couple of the different good aligned gods of the sea to give some examples. So the three that I was able to find were Njord, who is from the Norse pantheon, Deep Sachelis, who is one of the Seldarine, so the elf pantheon, and Habakkuk from Dragonlance. I, I really enjoy the Dragonlance pantheon a lot. Unfortunately, a lot of the gods of the sea are evil aligned, which I understand from a roleplay game aspect because a lot of the times in our storytelling, the sea is very adversarial, very confrontational. Right. But I think I think in this case, going through Greek mythology, I think you could really argue that Poseidon was good alive. I think so. I mean, he had some adversarial stuff, particularly with like Athena, but it was more like a friendly competition. But he literally went out of his way a lot of times to try to help and go. So I would throw Poseidon in here. I think in older editions, he is categorized as being neutral. But yeah, I could definitely see Poseidon slash Neptune having a realm on this particular layer of the plane. But, you know, you end up having gods like Umberly. Umberly is chaotic evil, I think. She, she's the god of the sea and storms. So, I mean, one of, one of her nicknames is the sea bitch. So <laughs> she definitely does not have a realm here. Yeah, that probably shifts her fully squarely into neutral. No, she's evil. Oh, she's, she's straight, straight up evil? evil. Okay. Yeah. I like it. So Paylor, as the head of the Elysium HOA, has said that, no, she cannot buy a house here. <laughs> He's such an uppy bastard. <laughs> oh. All right, so that's the general overview of the layers. So let's talk a little bit about the native creatures that you can run into whenever you're on the plane of Elysium. As we mentioned, the primary one are going to be the Gardinals. Gardinals were present in 2nd and 3rd edition. They haven't made it into later editions. There are actually seven varieties, uh, six from 2nd edition, and then the seventh was added in the Book of Exalted Deeds in 3rd edition. So you have the Averils, which are eagles, the Servidals, which are rams, the Equinals, who are horses, the Leonals, who are lions, the Lupinals, which are wolves, and the Ursinals, which are bears. But you also have the Mustavals, who are the mouse people. They are smaller and less powerful than the others, but they act as spies and informants. Of course they do. They're the intelligence service for the Cardinals. Yeah, okay, I can see that. And in the in the third edition books, 
it says that they acknowledge the fact that they don't have a representative in the leadership and they wholeheartedly believe that it is an oversight that is going to be swiftly remedied. Oh my. (laughs) That does not sound good. That sounds like there's going to be some nefarious happenings going on. (laughs) Well, I mean, considering the fact that they weren't added until third edition. Fair enough. It's something that they had to account for. Yes. Sometimes we've got to retcon some things. Or modify. Yes. Not necessarily retcon, but advance. Because it is a continuation of the narrative in third edition. So another big one that you're going to run into are the angels. In second edition, they were referred to as the Asimon which I was really excited to find out because that gives me finally the nomenclature for the connection for why Asimar are called Asimar. Right. Because the Asimar are the offspring of these Asimon, the angels, and the humanoid petitioners of the plane. Because Nephilim was already taken. Yeah. Although, going by your Diablo lore, the Nephilim are the spawn of angels and demons, not angels and humans. Even by Diablo lore, it wasn't necessarily the angels and demons. It was angels or a demon with a human. I don't think so. I think in Diablo 3, it was pretty established that Sanctuary was where the angels and the demons got together and their children were the Nephilim. And then the World Stone was corrupted and they lost their Nephilim powers and became run-of-the-mill humans. Okay, see, I thought the angels and demons both kind of went there and they were both, hey, the people are here, so we're going to do our things with the peoples. That might be older lore. That might be Diablo 2 lore. But in Diablo 3, I forget which of the angels ended up creating Sanctuary alongside Lilith. Gotcha. And the two of them together created Sanctuary and their offspring and the offspring of the other angels and demons that got together were the Nephilim. Okay. Anyway, another digression. (laughs) (laughs) So many Um, rabbit trails. In 5th edition, you really only have three varieties of angels. You've got the Diva, you've got the Solar, you've got the Planetar. In 2nd edition, you had eight different varieties of angels at different power points along the spectrum. But your Asimon and your Asimar are both going to be here. Another creature, one of the creatures that hasn't come forward, there's a couple of them, but one of them is called the Baku, which I believe is drawn from either South Asian or East Asian lore. And they're these nine foot tall elephants that have lizard scales and tails and can shapeshift into humanoid form. Oh, those sound kind of cool. Yeah, they are really cool. Um, I wonder if, was Ganesha a Baku? I don't know. I wouldn't say so. Okay. Because another thing is that they have kind of short stubby trunks. Gotcha. Actually, I don't know. They're nine feet tall and their trunks are four feet long. So, Well, that's not really short or stubby. <laughs> well, for an elephant that normally has their trunk reach all the way to the ground. Granted. But anyway, the Baku are there. According to the second edition books, 85% of them are good aligned and about 10% of them are evil aligned. And the good aligned ones try and hunt down and eradicate the evil aligned ones. And even the evil end ones are still on Elysium? I don't know. I I don't think so. Gotcha. I was gonna say. Though they no, could I, I, I don't mean, I don't think I don't think that Elysium is an exclusive home to Baku. Okay. I think gotcha. I think they are just a creature that can be found oh, here. There. Okay, gotcha. Because they are neutral in alignment and usually good in morality. Makes sense. Okay. Another one of the creatures that didn't make it into later editions from second are called sunflies. So they are these brightly colored dragonflies with humanoid faces on them that go around singing songs, humming tunes. They're the ultimate in dropping an earworm. They harass evil creatures that come in and they will go and inform the Gardinals whenever they find one. So remember the butterflies and stuff in Who Framed Roger Rabbit when they get into Toontown? Yes. <laughs> yes. This is exactly what I picture. That is exactly it. And they just otherwise go around being disgustingly cheerful. Oh my god, these things suck. <laughs> <laughs> and then one of the big creatures that happens to be here, I think it's on the second layer, is the Phoenix. Yes, and that's kind of awesome. That there's, just, there's no god on the second layer because the phoenix is there, and the phoenix is just kind of... No, that's the third layer. The third layer doesn't have any gods on oh, it. Oh, okay. 
But yeah, the Phoenix is there doing its thing. The fact that there's a Phoenix on the Planet of Good makes me exceedingly happy. I would visit just to see the Phoenix. In 5th edition, they did bring in the Phoenix. It's in uh, Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes. It's one of the Elder Elementals. So now the Phoenix is going to be, according to that, tied to the Elemental Plane of Fire. But I can definitely see tweaking it a little bit, changing its alignment from neutral to good, and throwing it onto the Plane of Elysium, and maybe even replacing its fire damage with radiant damage. Oh, absolutely. Because it would be a holy fire. Or, you know, split it 50-50, kind of like a flame strike. Split it 50-50 between uh, fire damage and radiant damage. I could even, perhaps depending on the age of the phoenix, and make it like a uh, a maturity type thing. Okay, so yeah. Like the younger Possibly. phoenix would probably be on the plane of good and have radiant damage. And then as as it ages, it maybe it moves down in the fire and develops fire damage as it kind of get a whole Pokemon thing type thing going. Maybe it goes to the elemental plane of fire whenever it's coming to the end of its life cycle so that it can rejuvenate. Yeah, that'd make perfect sense. So it could be consumed by the fire of the elemental plane of fire, and then whenever it hatches, it returns to Elysium. I like it. Okay. Another thing from second edition, the Einheriar. They're these spiritual warriors of good. They are kind of the equivalent of the Valkyries from Norse lore. I don't know if it would actually be the Valkyries or if it would actually be the warrior spirits within Valhalla. It would be the warrior spirits within Valhalla. So you're going to meet there. So if you're a, a Jim Butcher fan or a fan of the Dresden Files, these are going to be your Einherjarn. Yeah. So they are those that fought and died for good, be it protecting the village or the town or protecting a king or whatever their good crusade was, and they died in battle for that good ideal. Absolutely. And they answer prayers directly. So if there are warriors on the field praying for aid because they're being overwhelmed or what have you, the Einherjar will show up but only enough of them will show up to make it a fair fight. I like that. They don't show up to save you. They show up to give you a fighting chance. And that's perfect. I am perfectly okay with that. And again, that's where my neutral heart sings. And another interesting point about them is they have masterwork weapons, which is something from the older editions where you have non-magical weapons that have a plus one, plus two, plus three bonus on them. They have masterwork weapons, but nothing magical. All of their gear is masterwork, so it has bonuses on it, but nothing that they wield is magical. Right. And so that's kind of an interesting thing is they are present throughout all of the good aligned planes. They acknowledge the authority of creatures like the Gardinals and the Archons and the Asimon, these other powerful good aligned creatures but they don't actually take orders from any of them. They are the honey badgers of the good aligned. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> but they, they really should be on the neutral planes, but yeah, I, I like these things. And so next on the list is oversized beasts. Because of the proximity to the plane of positive energy, the beasts that exist on Elysium are oversized and they're more intelligent and they're typically a little more docile if you happen to be good aligned. Think friendly dire beasts. Pretty much the plane of positive energy throws a little bit of miracle grow onto all the things growing. So everything gets a little bit of a buff. Yeah. Another one from second edition that I really wish had come across is called the Holly Font. The Holly Font is this two foot tall elephant with wings. <laughs> That's And funny. psionics. Oh, oh my. That went from funny to scary real fast. Yeah, it's this cute little flying elephant until it trumpets at you and your brains leak out your ears. But is it pink? It can be. Okay, done and done. <laughs> Head cannon. Yeah, and they're great. They're just fun little creatures. They have supplanted flumps as my favorite good aligned creature. <laughs> Polyphons are where it's at. Flumps are so fun to say, though. They are, but I want my flying pink elephant. Am I going to have to find you a flying pink elephant stuffy? If you can, I will take it. Nora would steal it from you. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> she already stole my narwhal. Anyway, next we have the foo creatures, the creatures from Chinese lore, the foo dogs and the foo lions. Now, again, we've encountered them on some other planes previously as well. Yes, they were the guardians within the grounds of the Jade Palace. So the palace of the Celestial Emperor from Mechanus. So we've got those. There's the Balena. They are sentient humpback whales. That so it would be can... Balena? 
possibly B-A-L-A-E-N-A. Yeah, I'd say like a baleen whale. Yeah, that's where it's coming from. Okay. But their song ability has the ability to hypnotize or charm you. Because there's not enough stuff to hypnotize or charm you in Elysium. Seriously? Seriously. Basically, they only use it if you attack them to make you stop attacking them. Okay, that's reasonable, I suppose. That's the bulk of what they use it for. So getting into some of the third edition creatures that you can find, the Archons. So they're Hound, Lantern, and Trumpet Archons. They are more of your lawful good aligned creatures. They're the lawful good equivalent of the Gardinals who are neutral good. I didn't think to look up and see which of the Archons are present in second edition. I know that those three are present in third edition, but I'm pretty sure that there's going to be more of them if I go digging because in second edition you had six, eventually seven different types of Gardinals and only two of them made it into the monster manual in third edition and then three more came out later. So I'm pretty sure that there's more Archons than those three, but those are the three that made it into third edition And I don't think any of them have made it into 5th edition. That's another one of those native to the good planes creatures that hasn't made it across yet. Again, a lot of these higher planes are outer plane creatures. And I fully expect or would expect that the wizards are going to eventually write some stuff up and bring a lot more of these over. But I don't know if they haven't gotten to them or if they've just forgotten them. Well, I think it's because they're spending so much time focusing on the blood war. They're focusing on the demons and the devils, and that's tying up just about all of their outer planes resources. And so many of their other things are focusing. I mean, if you look at the modules that have come out, so many of them are focusing on either the material plane or the echo planes, specifically the Shadowfell, because that's where Ravenloft is. And not even the whole Shadowfell, just Ravenloft. It's just the the domains of dread in Ravenloft that they're focusing on. And it's almost like they're wanting to discourage you from actually hopping to other planes. Yeah, they're making it more difficult. I don't know if it's intentional, but that's definitely what it feels like. Anyway, getting back on topic, another batch of creatures that you're going to find in the plane of Elysium, metallic dragons. Awesome. Metallic dragons are good aligned. You're going to find them here in Elysium. The Storm Giants, it specifically mentions Storm Giants in the first two layers in the third edition Manual of the Plains. That sometimes the Gardinals get onto them about stirring up the weather because the weather is supposed to be very calm and idyllic. And then they'll just stir up a storm because they might need a storm for some reason. Right. So that's something that specifically Storm Giants are present in Elysium. The Bariar, they are sheep centaurs. So they've got the body of a ram and they've got the curling ram's horns like a satyr would, but the humanoid torso attached to the top of that. They were present in Planescape. There were actually rules to make your own Bariar player character in Planescape, which is really cool. That's kind of cool. And then the creature itself continued into third edition, and I haven't seen it since. And then the last category that I would throw in here are your celestial beasts. So your coatl, your unicorns, your pegasi, possibly hippogriffs and griffins. Those yeah, those, are the, those are the sorts of creatures that I would associate with Elysium. Possibly something like blink dogs, even though they're fey, because <laughs> they are inherently good aligned. I would again, I could I could see that. I would throw Blink Dogs in here. Yeah, I could even see the Blink Dogs being a courier or messenger type. I mean, I would think Faye would have a really hard time in Elysium just because there is so much mind-altering stuff that they would probably send emissaries versus going in personally. Yeah, I could definitely see Blink Dogs being used as couriers for the Arch Faye communicating with someone on Elysium. Yeah. So again, we haven't talked a lot about like particular 
encounters or scenarios uh, you could come up with in Elysium. There is a ton of lore. And like I said, it, it is weird. It's really in-depth because, again, there are so many different pools that we're drawing from on this as far as what lore was brought into Elysium. There's a lot you can do here. There's a lot of scenarios you can kind of come up with. It's not an empty plane by any stretch of the imagination. Again, I find it a little creepy, personal opinion, but there is definitely a lot that can be done with the materials as presented. Absolutely. So thank you everyone for joining us for our trip through Elysium today. Uh, Next week, we are going to be continuing on our tour of the singularly aligned planes going to the next most popular selection on our poll. So next week we are going into Hades, the plane of evil. Oh my. Which is going to be quite a drastic shift Yeah, we're going from fourth gear to reverse. Just about, yeah. There's a lot of really cool stuff in Hades. A lot of stuff that I really want to touch on that wasn't touched on at all in 5th edition Dungeon Master's Guide. You see the pattern here. Yeah, again, a lot got left behind. If you have any suggestions or ideas for future episodes or any comments on any of our past episodes, please send us an email at undercommontaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing our Shakespeare and Insult Page a Day calendar inspired role play prompts six days a week. I'm posting them to our Twitter account and then cross posting them to our Instagram and Facebook accounts, which are at undercommontaste. We have a Patreon account, so if you want to help us financially support the show, go ahead and come on over patreon.com slash undercommontaste. We have all of our write-ups up on our Patreon account, and we also have some patron-exclusive content that we also put up on our Patreon account, so come and check that out. You can find us on wherever you get our podcast. so always feel free to give us a rate and a review. Uh, it helps uh, increase our accessibility so we can reach more people and get a better idea of what you all want to hear. So thank you again for joining us. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week. Happy gaming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at Undercommon Taste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCT Homebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash Dr. Mary C. Crowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.